0: With those early saints, we stand at the tomb with utter amazement, seeing that it is empty. And like those early saints, we find that that reality just absolutely staggers the imagination. I'm sure goosebumps of exhilarating joy must have covered their bodies, don't you know? It does mine when I think about it now. Tears of mourning became tears of joy. You see, folks, there is no rotting corpse in the royal bedchamber. Only the linen linen wrappings that covered the Lamb of God now lay neatly wrapped on that cold stone. You see, the sacred sepulcher is now empty, proving the sin debt has been paid. It could not hold the one who has power over death, and because he lives, all who know him will live as well. So as Christians, we don't gaze upon some, some massive pyramid, for example, that attempts to immortalize and glorify a mere mortal that has been gone for a long time, whose body has decayed and whose soul is now incarcerated in an eternal hell. Nor do we gaze upon the royal mausoleum of some king long departed and forgotten. But rather, we behold a simple rock tomb that held the lover of our souls, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he has risen just as he said. No wonder this was part of the theme of Peter's first sermon. Remember on the day of Pentecost, there he declared that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Oh, what a glorious thought. We serve a risen Savior. Although millions of Christians gather in churches around the world today, or I should say perhaps on Easter Sunday, whenever that is in their time zone, I must say that for most Christians, they have very little understanding about the facts surrounding the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially those facts that unfold in the last week of his life. Therefore, instead of doing a normal exposition where I go verse by verse and immerse you into the Word, we're going to do something very different today. I want to take you on a historical journey of Jesus' public and private ministries that were designed to ultimately take him to a Roman cross so that he could rise from the dead and ascend back to glory until he comes again. And after some big picture history that will explain his final journey to Jerusalem, I wish to put into perspective five events that occurred during the Passion Week of Christ, and I hope this will help you grasp the staggering realities and significance of the voluntary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious resurrection. This morning, we're going to look at His messianic presentation, proclamation, preparation, propitiation, and pronouncement. All P's, you should remember those. I'll go over them as we go. And mind you, this is going to be a quick overview, but hopefully it will deepen your understanding of the person and work of Christ, the lover of our souls, that we might worship Him more deeply and serve Him more fully. So keep your Bibles ready, but let me begin with the history of Jesus' ministry. You will recall that Jesus began his public ministry after 30 years of living in complete obscurity. A ministry that lasted about three and a half years. And the first two and a half years began with the ministry of the forerunner who was John the Baptist. Who for three to five months announced the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We could call this now the the, the public presentation of Christ. And during that two-and-a-half-year period, Jesus drew massive crowds of Jewish people all around him. He saturated the areas that he was in with his claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he validated those claims with many miracles. And he began, actually, in Judea, by cleansing the temple in Jerusalem during Passover, the Passover season. He was there about eight months. It was during that time that John the Baptist was arrested and then Jesus departed for the northern part of Israel into the Galilee, traveling through Samaria where he dealt with a number of people, especially the woman at the well, as you'll recall. And then he spent about 18 months in Galilee where most of the Jewish people actually lived. And vast crowds of people heard his claims to be Messiah and God in the flesh. And he, once again, he performed many, many miracles, most of which aren't even recorded in the Word of God. But despite the irrefutable truth of his claims, Israel rejected his offer of the kingdom. And during that period, he experienced the, the official rejection of the Jewish leaders, which is described as the unpardonable sin in Matthew 12. And in John 6, we see also the popular rejection of all of the people. You will recall after he fed the 25,000 people, they demanded more signs, but instead he offered them himself the bread of life. Well, that's not what they wanted. They wanted more free stuff. They wanted a king to whoop up on Rome. They wanted to be free from all of that, but instead of giving him all, giving them all of that, he preached the gospel of sovereign grace to them, essentially, by the way, the five points of Calvinism in John 6, verses 36 through 40. And, of course, even like today, they greatly resented that. That was horribly offensive, and so as a result, according to verse 66 Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus then shifted from a public presentation to what we might call a, a private preparation. And this this lasted about a year. The first six months, he, he sought privacy. And he avoided miracles that, that attracted all of the multitudes of the people. And he fled from areas that were populated by the Jews to areas where territories where there weren't very many Jewish people. And this was a time where he spent training his 12. And he had been speaking openly and plainly, but now he began to speak in parables. And towards the end of that period, Jesus finds solitude with his apostles, and for the first time he begins to foretell his death. Then to encourage his forlorn apostles, he he reinforced their their wavering faith. And you will recall that he peeled back some of his flesh and allowed the effulgence of his glory to shine forth on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of the glorified Christ. And then, after that, we see that he, for about six months, during this private time of preparation, six months before his crucifixion, he spent a lot of time around Jerusalem. In November, he went to uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles, and in December he attended the Feast of Dedication, and then he fled back into Perea in order to avoid being captured because his time had not yet come. And it was there that the sister of Lazarus sent for him because Lazarus was sick. And in February, he goes to the village of Bethany just outside Jerusalem, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, that was about six to eight weeks before the Passion Week, the final week of Christ before he was crucified. And, of course, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, that miracle absolutely electrified the Jews, Word spread like wildfire, and that's what Jesus wanted, because that was going to set up his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And after this miracle, Jesus then once again found seclusion in a little village called Ephraim, a little wilderness village north of Jerusalem, a few miles, and there he remained hidden from his enemies until he would make his final trip into Jerusalem for the Passover. No one knew where Jesus was. They were looking for him. But the question they were all asking, as recorded in John 11, verse 56, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? But also we know that by this time, the Jewish leaders had already decided they were going to kill him one way or another. Then Jesus and his disciples left Ephraim and took a rather lengthy route Uh, traveling again across the Jordan into Perea, uh, traveling along the, the Jordan Rift. There they would meet with many of the Jewish pilgrims that were going to Jerusalem for the Passover. And these pilgrims would do the long way around to avoid being defiled by the Samaritans that they hated so desperately. And so Jesus joined in with them as he makes his final journey into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Because it was there that he would become the Passover lamb. He once again takes up the mantle of the Messiah very publicly. He resumes a public ministry of teaching and, and miracle working. And at this point, he is openly confrontational towards the Pharisees. Now again, the Jews were expecting him to save them from Rome. But they did not understand their need to be saved from their sin, that he would do that first. They could not grasp the idea of two comings of Christ separated by an undisclosed period of time. They thought that the mediatorial kingdom of Old Testament prophecy was at hand as the Lord had announced. But because of Jewish unbelief, the fullness of the messianic blessings promised to Israel would have to wait until his second coming. And that's what we're waiting for now. And until that time would come, the nations of Israel would suffer many years of judgments for its unbelief. So finally, Jesus and the apostles make their way back to Bethany where he had previously raised Lazarus from the dead. And according to John 12:1, it indicates that he arrived on Saturday, quote, six days before the Passover. And there Jesus is welcomed by Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. You will recall they were, he, they, they were served this, this fantastic feast there at Bethany. Mary anointed Jesus' feet, and it was there that Jesus rebuked Judas and defended Mary for spending all of the money for that expensive perfume for Jesus. And, of course, this was the final straw for Judas. He'd had, he'd had enough of that. And so he devises his sinister, sinister plot to betray Jesus. And while in Bethany with his friends, Jesus prepared himself for what was going to happen in a few days. And on Sunday, the first day of the week, the crowds gathered all around the house of Lazarus, we read. They wanted to see what had happened. They're just still fascinated. Word has spread all through the region, and people are coming to see this man that was raised from the dead. And according to John 12, verse 9, they came to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Obviously, Lazarus was a a living testimony. Of the supernatural power of the Lord Jesus Christ, which validated his claim to be God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. By sovereign design, this crowd now is absolutely electric with excitement. Jesus had deliberately laid all of the groundwork necessary to communicate to everyone, both friend and foe, that he was coming to Jerusalem. For Passover. This brings us to his final Passion Week. And here I give you kind of briefly those five points that I mentioned to you. First of all, we see his messianic presentation. Here's what happened the next day, the crowds made their way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and coronate their Messiah King, Jesus, and his apostles also were with him, and they make their way to Jerusalem. And so I might add, rather than the traditional Palm Sunday, it was more likely on Monday that this occurred, after Jesus had been in Bethany with Lazarus. It was then that he made his way through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. According to John 12 and verse 12, we read, On the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, which by the way means save now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now I might also add that a Monday triumphal entry is also very important because according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, we read that, The sacrificial lamb for Passover, according to Mosaic law, had to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. And then that lamb had to be taken into the home and loved as a pet until the time of sacrifice on the 14th. And only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill this important symbolism because the year Jesus was crucified the 10th of Nisan was on the Monday of the Passover week. And so this would allow the Jews to nationally select Jesus as their Passover lamb and then to symbolically take him into their hearts and into their home and love them as they did. And then, of course, we know they turned against him and they sacrificed him on Friday the 14th of Nisan. Of course, they didn't understand all of this at the time. Now, this amazing event was by no means a surprise to Jesus. Quite contrary, according to Scripture, it was decreed by, by sovereign God in eternity past. In fact, according to Daniel's prophecy that had been made some 600 years earlier, in Daniel 9 and verse 25, we read about the very day of our Lord's Messianic Presentation. It was predicted then by the Holy Spirit, 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, we read that Messiah the Prince would be presented to the Jewish nation on April 10, 30 A.D. Likewise, the manner of our Lord's triumphal entry, yet humble entry I might add, was predicted 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah Zechariah 9 and verse 9, we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So as the Messiah king approaches Jerusalem, the crowds swell. And they are now in a frenzy of expectation, knowing that their Messiah is coming. And according to Luke chapter 19 and verse 38, we read, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. But then in verse 41, Luke reveals a very stunning event that puts this whole situation into proper perspective. As Jesus approaches the city, we read that he literally weeps. The idea in the original language is that he wails out loud in grief over their unbelief and the rejection of their king. He does not enter his city with joy, but with immense sorrow, with his tears flowing down his cheeks. According to Luke 19, beginning in verse 41, we read, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Yes, they wanted a king, but they didn't want a savior. They thought their works righteousness would do it for them. And, of course, this was literally fulfilled a few years later, on April 9th, 70 A.D. Of course, it took a long period of time, but the Romans came in under Titus. They laid siege. They build a siege wall around the city. They begin to build the ramp, and all of that terrifies the people over the months because they see there's no way out. And slowly they starved the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the Romans systematically slaughtered them, attacking one part of the city at a time. Eventually they utterly destroyed the temple and they took the remaining captives to Rome to be slaves and many of them to be mocked and butchered in the Roman circus and in the gladiatorial bouts. So on Monday, Jesus approached Jerusalem purposefully Voluntarily, obedient to the Father's will, to offer himself officially and finally as the King of the Messianic Kingdom, exactly as the Old Testament prophets had predicted. But then it's interesting, he returns quietly to Bethany, and then the next day he returns again to Jerusalem. So we've seen his Messianic presentation. Secondly, I want you to notice his messianic proclamation. This happened early Tuesday morning. Jesus and the twelve approached the city, and on the way, he curses the barren fruit or, or fig tree, I should say. He says in Matthew twenty one nineteen, "No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you," and at once, at once, the fig tree withered. And of course, this was symbolizing the judgment upon Israel. For they, like the leafy tree that gave the pretense of being fruitful, they were in fact barren spiritually. They did not, quote, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, Matthew 3.8. So he enters Jerusalem. And we know that there were approximately 250,000 plus worshipers and many other people with them. So there well could have been at least a million people. They're preparing for Passover. But what does Jesus do? He enters the temple. And he begins to cleanse it. And for two days. He takes over and rules in its precincts. He claims possession of it. As the mighty sovereign. And during that time every stratum of official Judaism verbally attacked him. They did everything they could to embarrass him, to humiliate him in public. But instead, he embarrassed them with his answers. He made fools of them. And he even openly rebuked them for their ignorance of scripture. Moreover, he pronounced judgment upon them, all who rejected him. And in his last public discourse, he denounced the scribes and the Pharisees in a series of woes recorded, for example, in Matthew 23. And in his last public discourse, he denounced them and publicly and, and they, were, they, they already wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to take him over right then because he was so popular with the multitudes and they knew it, be, it would be risky to seize him on the spot. And so Jesus and his disciples now leave the city on Wednesday night. They ascend once again the Mount of Olives, making their way back to the home of Lazarus in Bethany. And at the summit, they pause and they rest, and they look back over the city and view the temple. Many of us have been there. We've seen that view, the temple that built by Herod. And then Jesus said this to his disciples. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And then the disciples said, tell us, when will all these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then at that point we read in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse, which was his longest answer concerning future things concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, concerning his second coming, and specifically the, the conditions and the signs that would precede his second coming, the pre-kingdom judgments that would fall upon the earth that are paralleled in Revelation 6 through 19 and other passages. So Thursday afternoon, Jesus and the twelve re-enter the city. Now we come to my third point. We see his messianic preparation. Preparation is made for the Passover meal in a private room that they had obtained earlier. It's what would become the last supper that we celebrated a few minutes ago. And as evening approached, which was the Jewish Friday, the supper began with a dispute among the disciples over which one's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Can you imagine that conflict among Christian people? Oh my, can't imagine such a thing. And that was probably precipitated by the seating arrangement that they had there for the meal. That's probably what happened. Jesus rebuked them and he said, the greatest and true leader must become like a servant. And then what did Jesus do? He girded himself with a towel and he took the wash basin and he washed the disciples' feet. And during the meal, you will recall that Jesus exposed Judas as the betrayer, and he departs. Of course, G- Judas had already made arrangements with the Sanhedrin to, to betray Jesus, an event that would, that would actually take place a few hours later. And now the final drama of, of Jesus' death is set into motion. At this point, Jesus announces his departure, and Peter voiced his undying allegiance and and devotion to Christ. Jesus responded that instead, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. The Lord's Supper is then instituted, and after a farewell discourse to his disciple, he he departs with the eleven for the Garden of Gethsemane. He could go down past the temple, down through the valley, cross the, the brook Kidron, and begin to make his way up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And somewhere near the garden, Jesus offers a prayer of, of self-consecration and thanksgiving and intercession. We read about it in John 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And as they enter the garden, Jesus left eight of the disciples at the entrance, and he took the, quote, inner three with him into the inner recesses of the garden. And of course, we know from Scripture that the sufferings that Jesus endured in the garden were so intense that the disciples couldn't even watch. And there, in unimaginable anguish, our precious Savior sweat drops of blood. And three times he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And then in the middle of the night, as Jesus emerged from the garden, three remarkable events occurred. Judas comes and betrays him with a kiss. The Sanhedrin's then come to arrest him. He pronounces that he is the great I am, and they all fall, and yet they still come to get him. And then also his disciples abandon him in fear. And we know that only Peter and John followed him at a distance as he was taken to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas. It's still well before dawn on Friday, and now Jesus will undergo a series of mock trials by the Jewish leadership that violated every principle of jurisprudence and justice of which the Jews were so proud They spat upon him. We read about it earlier. They buffeted him. They would blindfold him and strike him and then challenge him to tell them who it was that did it, if indeed you're a prophet. And yet Jesus remained silent during all of this until the very end when he acknowledged that he was indeed the Son of God. And of course... That was a blasphemy of blasphemies to the Jews. That's all they needed to hear. A blasphemy worthy of death. So just after dawn, Jesus was formally condemned by the Sanhedrin. He was immediately taken to the Roman procreator, Pilate, who also interrogated him and said, I find no fault in him. But ultimately, to keep peace among the outraged Jews, Pilate capitulated to their demands decided to release Barabbas in exchange for Jesus, and then they had Jesus scourged, hoping this would satisfy the Jews. I'll not go into it, but the three kinds of scourgings that the Romans did were horrific, but the worst kind was the one that they did to Jesus. And very seldom would a person survive from this type of torture, but he did. So reluctantly, Pilate turned Jesus over to be crucified as the rival king. Between the hours of 6 and 9 a.m. on Friday morning, the Roman soldiers made sport of Jesus. They mocked him. and They escorted him to Golgotha, where he was offered a narcotic, which he refused. And there, between two thieves, the Son of God was crucified. This leads us to my fourth point, and that is the messianic propitiation. We read about this, for example, in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiate, in the original language, halosmos, it means to appease or to satisfy or to placate. The Son of God was the one that satisfied or appeased the wrath of God that we should have endured. And that those who reject Christ will endure for eternity. And of course this all spoke to the literal atonement. You will recall in the Old Testament. In the tabernacle as as well as in the temple. In the Holy of Holies. No one could could come near into the inner inner sanctuary that housed the Ark of the Covenant. Except the high priest. One day a year. During Yom Kippur the day of atonement. And inside that ark, which was a box made of gold, was the Sinaitic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the, the Law of Moses, the Holy Standard. And you will recall that above that ark was a lid. And on either side of the ark were the outstretched arms of the cherubim guarding the holiness of God symbolically. And between the cherubs would hover the Shekinah glory of God. The ineffable, dazzling, brilliant light of His presence. Too brilliant to be seen by fallen eyes. But there was a lid on top of that ark. It was a lid of separation that between the violated law and the holy presence above. The separation was there because... Sinful man could never come into the presence of a holy God apart from the shedding of blood that would atone for their sins. And on that lid, divine justice and grace would come together symbolically every year with the high priest when he would sprinkle the blood of the animal on that lid for the sins of Israel. And of course, that lid was called the mercy seat the place where the just wrath of God was symbolically propitiated, where the fury of a holy God was temporarily appeased, where his, his vengeance upon sinners would be temporarily placated. And we must understand that the entire Old Testament sacrificial system all pictured the ultimate and final propitiation, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ where God Himself would provide the means to appease His own wrath. Herein is the love of God, right? That He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. During the first three hours upon the cross, between 9 and 12 noon, Jesus spoke three times. And each statement was a statement of compassion. First, He gave a word of compassion for His enemies. He said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Secondly, he gave a word of compassion for the repentant thief. He said, today you shall be with me in paradise. And thirdly, he gave a word of compassion for his mother. When he said, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. And then at noon, darkness fell upon the earth. It lasted until 3 p.m. And during this time, Jesus spoke four more times. First, there was a cry of unimaginable anguish of soul as he bore the sins of all whom the Father had given him in eternity past, as he bore them in his body, and he experienced the torture of broken communion with the Father. And then he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then secondly, there was a cry of agony when he said, I thirst. And thirdly, a cry of triumph when he said, it is finished. And then finally, a cry of commitment when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And with that, in the darkest hour of history, the Lamb of God exercised his will as he released his soul from his body, which was in keeping with his prior statement recorded in John 10, In verse 17, when he said, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And then at that moment, three miraculous phenomena instantly occurred. The veil separating the most holy place. From the Holy of Holies was rent in two from top to bottom demonstrating that God, not man, did it. By the way, that was a massive veil. It was 60 feet long, 300 feet wide, about 6 inches thick. We learned that it took about 200 men to move it periodically for cleaning. It was made up of 72 squares with magnificent embroidery. And it was ripped in two symbolizing that now all those that place their faith in Christ have access into the presence of God. We don't need a priest. And the second phenomena was that the earth shook and the rocks were split. And thirdly, the graves were opened all around Jerusalem. And the Bible says many bodies of saints which slept arose. And then after the resurrection of Christ, these went into the city and, quote, appeared to many And then before sundown, the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of the victims, but they discovered Jesus was already dead. Nevertheless, they pierced his side with the sword. And then as they put him into the tomb, the chief priests and the Pharisees wanted a guard around it. We read that earlier. And so Jesus was buried sometime before sundown on Friday. And there his body laid all of Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, And then just before sunrise, on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. The propitiation was finished, and now we have, finally, the Messianic pronouncement in Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, And Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Beloved, herein is the Messianic pronouncement that he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. In fact, speaking of the divine sonship of Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Romans 1-4, that he, quote, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. And beloved, the most irrefutable, compelling evidence that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God is seen in his resurrection From the dead. Dear friends, He has risen. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And it's amazing to realize that He is coming again, even as He has promised. Remember, He came the first time in humility, the second time He will come in unimaginable glory. The first time He came as a lamb that opened not His mouth. But he will come again as the Lion of Judah, just as he has promised. The first time he came as a humble servant, but he is coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. He came the first time as a sacrifice for sinners. But when he comes again, he will come to judge the nations. And he will be the judge and executioner of all those who reject him. So those of you who might be within the sound of my voice that do not know Christ, I plead with you as a servant of the Most High God and a messenger of the Gospel that you come and see the place where He was lying and you see that He is not there. The stone has been rolled away. The sepulcher is empty. The tomb is empty. He is not there. And mark my word... If you reject Him, one day you will see Him, but not as your Savior and King, but as your judge and as your executioner. And so I plead with you to place your faith in Christ. And for those of us who know and love Christ, my, isn't it wonderful to know that because He lives, we too live, right? We too will enjoy eternal life, what a blessing it will be to see even our loved ones who have long departed, and to all be united someday in glory. Folks, I pray, those of you that know Christ, tap into the resurrection power that we have. Remember with Paul, he said that he counted everything to be loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And in so many passages, we read about that resurrection power that we have. Let's tap into it through holy living through loving one another, through serving Christ selflessly, and longing to see our King come in all of His glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these eternal truths. I pray that by the power of Your Spirit, they will be embedded in each heart. I pray especially for those that really know nothing of what it means to be in relationship with you through faith in Christ. Oh God, give them no rest until they come to saving faith and they too can enjoy the wonder, the miracle of the new birth. And as believers, Lord, use us mightily for the sake of the kingdom. May we tap into the power that is ours in Christ knowing that we can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Thank you for these great truths. We commend them all to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.